Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a thought-provoking two-week series on social justice with some special guests. Here to introduce today's guest speaker is our youth pastor, David Sauer. Well, good morning, Bay Hills. It's my pleasure to be able to introduce Mike. Mike is an author, speaker, and advocate. He and his wife, Dana, they currently live in North Bend, Indiana, where she is finishing up her PhD at Notre Dame, which is pretty cool. Mike spends much of his time speaking to audiences across the United States and Canada, presenting a Christ-centered response to some of our world's greatest needs. When he is not studying, speaking, or writing, he loves spending time outdoors, um, and you'll hear more about that today, I'm sure. Mike has also served on the board of directors of World Vision U.S., the advisory board of Kilns College, and is an author of Under the Overpass, A Journey of Faith on the Streets of America, My 30 Days Under the Overpass, Not Your Ordinary Devotional. And he and his wife, Dana, are the executive editors of Zealous Love, A Practical Guide to Social Justice. This is a guy that I feel, I don't feel very smart when I'm around him. He's the smartest guy in the room. But it's really cool that he is here with us today. I'd like you to give a huge Bay Hills welcome to Mike Yankowski. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks very much. It is a real honor and privilege to have the chance to be here with you this morning. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, as, as, uh, as you just heard, my wife, Danae, is doing her PhD at the University of Notre Dame, so I definitely always feel like not the smartest person in the room when I'm around her. But I must say that you all have gotten me in a little bit of trouble. Uh, we met, Danae and I met, in Santa Barbara, California. And so now we live in Indiana, and I have the chance to be here today in California. So I'm in a little bit of trouble with Danae right now because she is not here in California with me. So thanks a lot. You guys got me in trouble. But it is nonetheless a deep honor and privilege to have the opportunity to be here with you today and have the chance to speak about questions and issues and realities in our world that I believe are very, very close to the heart of our King, to the heart of our Lord and our Savior, to the heart of Christ. And as a way of sort of framing this conversation today, I want to sort of look at two very brief passages of Scripture, and that's going to sort of form the foundation of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the day. I'm going to look very briefly at a passage from Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus's initiation of what he came to do in our world. This is what Jesus said at the very beginning of his public ministry. This happened in the synagogue. He was there on a day for worship, and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And like we often do, Jesus did in his time as well, they read from holy text. They read from the scriptures. And so Jesus stood up and read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah a very particular passage. And as it exists in the gospel of Luke, this is at the very beginning of what Jesus does, what he preaches, what he teaches, and the miracles that he enacts, the healing that he brings. So I believe that it's possible, and many other biblical scholars believe that we look to this text in Luke chapter 4 as an initiation or as the prologue of everything that Jesus 
is about to begin to do. That this is, in a sense, a summary. This is like the table of contents, in a sense, of what Jesus was on about when he was doing his public ministry here on earth. So we're going to look at this passage, and then we're going to look very briefly at a passage from Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth as a way of talking about how we, as followers of Christ, then participate with God in the work that God is up to in our world. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, excuse me, beginning in verse 18. This is what Jesus says. Jesus, reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, Jesus says this to start off his public ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, sat, and gave it back to the attendant. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then Jesus goes out, and then he begins preaching, and then he begins teaching, and then he begins healing, and then he begins reconciling. He begins doing all of those things that he just said that he was here to do, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at freedom, at liberty, those who are oppressed, to help those who are blind see. In a sense, this is the introduction, the prologue, the table of contents to what Jesus was on about in his public ministry here on earth, those three years when he was preaching, teaching, and enacting the kingdom of God. And if we shift and we look at what St. Paul has to say to the church at Corinth in his second letter, chapter 6, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, as co-laborers with God, as co-workers with God, we admonish you, we encourage you, we urge you to not receive God's grace in vain. To not receive God's grace in vain. To not let this thing called the good news of Jesus Christ be a seed that gets planted in your life but doesn't grow, doesn't germinate, doesn't flourish, doesn't bear fruit. Don't let that happen is what Paul is saying. As God's co-laborers, we admonish you to not let grace be a dead seed in your life. But let it be something that comes alive in you, that bears fruit in your life. Paul uses an extraordinary phrase there. You heard me saying co-workers, co-laborers. The Greek word there is synergoi. That's where we get our English word synergy from. Synergy, where two things work together, where two things are aligned in the same direction, where two things are participating together in the same action. That's what Paul seems to be suggesting that you and I as followers of Jesus are called to. That's what we're invited to. Not to be people who just sit back and let the seed of grace die in our lives, but rather people who are invited by God, empowered by God, enabled by the Holy Spirit to co labor, to co-work, to work synergistically with what God is up to in the world. And what is God up to in the world? I believe we look to Luke 4 and we see that this is what Jesus is on about. This is what God is up to in our world, that he is here to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty those who are captive, to help the blind see again, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In short, what Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they have life and life in all its fullness. That that's what you and I, as followers of this Jesus, are invited to, to co-labor, to co-work, to participate with God as God's kingdom is coming on this planet. As God's will is being more and more fully done on earth as it is in heaven. That you and I are not called to sit back, fold our hands, and just wait. 
that we are invited, enabled, empowered to participate with the work that God is at work to do in our world. To be what Paul calls ambassadors and agents of this kingdom. People who speak on behalf of the kingdom of God and also people who do on behalf of the kingdom of God. People who act. That's why I'm so excited to be here with you this morning, because in this little brief mini-series that you all are doing on social justice, or talking about the work of God in your world, in our world, and participating in that in very particular ways, and seeking to name the injustices that exist, the many, many injustices that exist in our world, and then seeking to bring life where there is death, to bring justice where there is injustice, to bring righteousness where there is unrighteousness, to help life come where death is at work. So it's an honor and a privilege for me to have the chance to be here with you this morning. I'm deeply, deeply grateful. And I think we all agree that we're a long way from life in all its fullness, both in our community, in our country, in our world, and in our own lives. So as we're beginning this conversation this morning, I would ask you simply to bow your heads with me and let's pray and let's seek the Lord as he is the author and the perfecter of all things. Pray with me if you would, please. Creating, sustaining, and redeeming God, thank you for the gift of life, for the chance to be, the chance to be here, to be in this place, in this time, to be gathered together with brothers and sisters to worship, to seek to draw close to you to seek your refreshment and your empowerment as we go about our lives. And sustaining and redeeming God, we pray, we cry out to you because we look around our world, our lives, our community, and we see all the ways in which your kingdom has not yet fully come, all the ways in which your will is not fully done in this place. We look at the Middle East, we look at Ukraine, we look at Ferguson. We look at Oakland, we look at our own homes and our own lives, Lord, and we cry out and we say, Lord, have mercy, and may your life come and overwhelm the death and the darkness and the pain that is at work in so many places. We cry, hasten the day of your kingdom coming, God, and we pray that until that day comes, you would enable us to be ambassadors and agents of your kingdom, that you would enable us and empower us, spirit of the living God, to participate, to synergistically work with you in the process of your kingdom coming. And that means many different things. You have created good works that we should walk in them, God. Not to earn your love, but because of your empowering love. So as we talk about this today, as we talk about social justice, as we talk about loving our neighbors as ourselves, Lord, as we talk about seeking your kingdom, I pray that you would help us to move more deeply into the works that you have created for us to walk in, not so that you'll love us, but because you have, because your life is coming into the world, because light is coming into the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. Help us to live that, God, not just to think it, not just to agree with it, but to live it out. Pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and give you thanks for this time. Amen. 
So what I'm going to do over the next couple of minutes is just share some of the story of my friend Sam's and my time living on the streets as homeless men. We lived for five months on the streets of six different cities in order to better understand what it's like to be a human being trying to survive on the margins of American society. And I'm going to share some of those stories as a lens or as a window, in a sense, to try and get at some of these I think profound foundations of the biblical story that God is at work to bring life where there is death, that God is at work to set at liberty those who are captives, that God is at work to bring flourishing where there is destruction. And I'm going to share some of these stories, and I'm hoping that what happens is that you and I will collectively be asking the questions, if I was in that situation, how would I respond? And is there an invitation there perhaps to become more of an ambassador and an agent of the kingdom of God, to become someone who speaks truly about the kingdom of God and then who also acts truly in relationship to the kingdom of God? But in order for this to make sense, let me just back up and say that I grew up in a small town in Parker, Colorado. This is just south of Denver. An upper middle class family. I mean, poverty was not something that I experienced personally. It was not part of my upbringing. I never had to go to bed at night wondering if there was going to be food the next day. I never had to go to bed wondering if we were going to have clean clothes to put on. I never had to go to bed wondering if there was going to be gas for the car. Never had to wonder about those things. I mean, I knew that there were people who were in need in our world, right? I mean, like when we were eating dinner together as a family, my mom would tell me that I should eat my vegetables because there were hungry kids in the world somewhere. And so I knew that there was someone else somewhere else who was in need. And so I ate my vegetables and hoped that I was helping somebody by doing so, right? I mean, you don't really question your mom when you're growing up. You just do it, right? So poverty was an abstract idea. It affected someone else somewhere else. That was my upbringing. That's how I grew up. Also, a part of my upbringing and how I grew up, I did not have any faith system or faith structure in place whatsoever. Didn't go to church, didn't read the Bible, didn't really know what religion was. My dad to this day is an atheist, doesn't believe there is such a thing as God. My mom is agnostic. She doesn't believe that if there is anything like God, that we can know anything about him or her or it. So it's best to just not believe. So I didn't grow up reading the Bible. I didn't grow up reading any holy text. I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't grow up with any religion or faith system in place. But just about the time I entered into high school, I started to ask those kinds of questions that you and I will ask when we're honest with ourselves big questions, the meta questions, the huge questions, like, why are we here? And where do we come from? Is there any reason or meaning or point or purpose to this thing called existence? Or are we, as one ancient great Greek philosopher put it, merely a fortuitous conglomeration of atoms, you know, that stuff stuck together and we woke up one day, there we were. Is that how it works? Is that what it is? Is it all just chance, just coincidence? I went to my dad, you know, I'm 13 years old, and I went to my dad and I said, Dad, is there anything like meaning to this thing called life? I mean, what, what is the point? What's the reason for it? My atheistic father thought about it for a minute and said, well, you know, no, I, I don't really think there is anything like meaning with a capital M to this thing called existence. I think it's all just chance, you know? I mean, we can care about things. We can invest them with emotional meaning. But no, I really don't think there's anything like an overarching meaning or purpose to this thing called existence. He said, really, if you think about it, we're all going to be dead one day. We're all going to be six feet under. And he said, really, if you think about it, one day the sun, a couple billion years from now, is going to explode in this third little rock from the sun, you know, like this little planet, this little tiny place. It's going to be incinerated. It's going to be ash. It's going to be nothing left. And everything that we as human beings have given our lives for, all the art, all the culture, all the history, all the beauty, all the hope that we have invested ourselves in, that we've given ourselves for, it's just going to be ash. It's going to be nothing. 
He looked at me and he said, so no, I don't think there's anything like meaning with a capital M to this thing called existence. I'm like 13, right? I'm like, so should I, do I need to go to school tomorrow? Or like, what do I, do I, do I go? Do I have to work? What is, what difference does it make, right? Like, what do I do with that? <laughs> right about that same time, a couple of my friends went to an evangelism training conference. They had been challenged by a speaker there at that conference to share their Christian faith with a friend. And I was the chosen friend. So my friends came home, called me up on the telephone and said, hey, Mike, there's this guy named Jesus. Do you know him? And I said, well, I mean, I've heard of him. You know, he died a long time ago. Like I've heard of, you know, other people who died a long time ago. He had a beard. I know that. Like he, he, he what else do I need to know? <laughs> they preached the gospel to me that night and I found my heart strangely warmed to use that wonderful phrase. I found my heart strangely warmed by the hope that this story was true. That there is a God who loves us, who has made us, who has formed us, who has a plan and purpose for our lives, that there is no such thing as chance or coincidence in this world. That God is overseeing it, in a sense. So I gave my life to Christ that night. That began the journey of becoming like Christ. That began the journey for me of becoming a Christian. And I started going to those friends' church. And one of the very first things that happened once I became a member of that church was a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And that experience flipped my world upside down. Because poverty went from being an abstract idea about someone else, somewhere else, to being about a particular person, to being about one individual little boy who I met in the Dominican Republic. And that wrecked me. That completely flipped me upside down because it wasn't just an abstract idea anymore. It was reality. And it hit me upside the head. It was the very first afternoon in the Dominican Republic, I'm walking along a dirt path with a couple of my friends from high school from the States, you know, and we're walking along this path. And as we're walking along, these three little boys come running towards me. And two of the little boys don't have any clothes on at all. I mean, they're completely naked. They have nothing on, right? And the third boy has a tattered and filthy pair of blue shorts on. And as the boys are running towards me, I notice that the kid with the blue shorts on is looking behind him. And he's elated by the toy that he's dragging along the path behind him. And that toy is a bottle cap tied to a piece of string. And I, as an American, am thinking to myself, what is this kid doing playing with garbage? What is this? And then it dawns on me that that's exactly what he's doing. He's playing with a piece of garbage and he loves it. That his mother or his father didn't have enough money to buy a toy for him. So what they did is they went into the gutter behind their shack, reached down, picked up a piece of garbage, tied a string to it, gave it to the little boy and said, here, play with this. This is what we can afford. And suddenly here I am as a brand new Christian, a sophomore in high school. And all of these phrases from Christ's mouth are ringing through my head. Things, extraordinary things like to whom much is given, much is required. And love your neighbor as yourself. Or the apostle Paul coming along and saying extraordinary things like he does in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. What do I do with that? What do I do with that? What do I do with that as an American Christian and my house, my room and my house back in Parker, Colorado is twice the size of the shack that those three little boys, all them cousins, all live in with their extended family, aunts, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, moms, dads. What do I do with that? What do I do with the fact that I, in my home, are going to throw, I'm going to throw away more food than their family's going to eat in a week? What do I do with that? What do I do with that? What do I do as a rich Christian in an age of hunger? To use Ron Sider's title of his book. 
What do I do with that? Those questions began for me that day in the Dominican Republic as I was confronted by reality, and I'm still asking those questions. I think those are the kinds of questions that lead us more deeply into the heart of God. What does it mean for you as men and women of faith here in this city, given the statistic that you heard earlier this morning about how human trafficking happens in your backyard? What does it mean? What does it mean to proclaim liberty to the captives, given that reality? What does it mean? Good questions for us to be asking as we seek to participate, as we seek to synergistically co-labor with God as God's kingdom is coming. So I began asking those kinds of questions in the Dominican Republic that afternoon. As I said, I'm still asking them. But I came back from the Dominican Republic, long story short, graduated from high school, began looking for a place to go to college. Found a great school in California, Santa Barbara, amazing small Christian school there called Westmont's. Had a chance to apply, got accepted, and as I was in my freshman year, one of my very first courses at Westmont was a New Testament survey. And one of the very first assignments in that New Testament course was to write a paper on one of Jesus' parables. So I chose the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're all familiar with this story, right? This is the story that Jesus tells in response to the Jewish lawyer's question, Who is my neighbor? Now, this is an interesting scenario, right? Because Jesus is a Jewish teacher and a Jewish lawyer comes up to the Jewish teacher and says, hey, I know the law. I know what's required of me. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. But tell me, Jesus, teacher, who is my neighbor? He's just engaging in a conversation with Jesus. Jesus tells a story in response to the question, right? About the man who's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He gets jumped. He gets robbed. The robbers rob him, beat him, leave him half dead on the side of the road. And then three people come along in Jesus' story. The first is a priest. The second is a Levite. They walk by on the other side of the road, giving a wide berth to the person who's in need on the side of the road. Why? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe they're like us. Maybe they're, maybe they're busy. Maybe they have something on their mind. Maybe they're going to meet someone. Maybe they had something to do that day. They didn't have time to stop. Maybe that's what it is. Or contextually, maybe it's that they thought the person on the side of the road was dead. And in Jesus' time, a dead person was perceived of as unclean, ritualistically unclean. If the priest or the Levite were to have gone and touched the dead person or the person whom they presumed was dead on the side of the road, they would have become unclean. If you contact, make physical contact with someone who's unclean, you then become unclean and you can't participate in the ritualistic sacrifices at the temple. Maybe it's that the priest and the Levite were trying to maintain their religious purity. Maybe that's what's going on. Whatever the reason is, they walk by on the other side of the road. They choose to not stop and respond. And then the Samaritan comes along. Now, what's interesting about this is that Jesus is a Jew. And so for a Jewish teacher to use a Samaritan as an example of what it means to fulfill the law in Jesus' time would have been unthinkable. Because the Jews and the Samaritans, they were at odds with one another. They didn't like one another. It'd be like a Republican saying, this is what it looks like to be a good Republican pointing at a Democrat. Or it'd be like a Democrat saying, this is what it looks like to be a good Democrat but pointing at a Republican. You would just never expect that, right? You just, it would make no sense. This is kind of what's going on in Jesus' day and age. Because you would never expect a Jew to use a Samaritan as, what it, as an example of what it means to be a good Jew, what it means to fulfill the Jewish law. But the Samaritan in Jesus' story comes along and stops, sees the person on the side of the road, and responds The text says he goes to the person on the side of the road, puts on the best medicine of the day, bandages his wounds, puts him on his own animal, carries him to an inn, pays the innkeeper to take care of him. Extraordinary compassion, extraordinary mercy, extraordinary love enacted. Not just an idea, but manifest. Then Jesus turns to the lawyer and asks him the question, right? Which of these three was a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? Well, the answer is obvious. 
So I wrote a paper on this, right? I mean, I read several scholarly articles on it. I read some books about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I wrote a really good paper on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I got an A on my paper. I get the paper back, and I pat myself on the back, and I think to myself, good, I'm glad I understand that. That's kind of an important parable. You know, I'm good. I'm glad I understand intellectually, abstractly what this is about. I'm glad I got it. I've aced it. The next week, I'm sitting in a church service, and the pastor stands up, and this is the church I was attending at the time, and they were just about to start a new series about loving your neighbor as yourself. So the pastor stands up and says, hey, welcome. As we're starting this new series about loving our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can imagine my response, right? I kind of kick back in my pew, right? Like I put my feet up. And I'm thinking about raising my hand and saying, hey, if you miss any of the details, I could email you my paper. You should read it. I should read it. I, I aced it. I could preach for you next week if you want me to. Fill in the gaps. You know, that's kind of my attitude because I think I've got it. I understand it. What was pointed out to me that day is the significant gap between understanding and action that all too often exists. And I think all too often exists in our lives as Christians because we think faith in Christ is about agreeing with doctrines as opposed to living in a particular way. So the pastor said, hey, I'm going to read this parable. And so as he read the parable, he said, I have a question for you. Which of the characters in this story most characterizes you? If you were in this story, who would you most identify with? The priest, the Levite, the Samaritan? Who would you be? And as he read the parable... Felt the Holy Spirit just convict me, knock me over the head in a sense, with a memory of what had happened the night before, Saturday night. I'd been downtown Santa Barbara. My friends and I had gone to dinner into a movie, and as we're walking from the movie theater back through downtown Santa Barbara to get into the parking lot and drive back up the hill to our comfortable Christian college campus, we passed two homeless guys. And they're sitting on my left, and my friends and I are walking by, and as we walk, and as we get, get, as we get closer to them, I turn to my friend on my right, and I crack a joke. Not a joke about the homeless people, just a joke in general about dinner or a movie or Westmont or whatever, just a joke. Because what's going through my mind is I am thinking to myself, if I can convince these two people that they do not exist, then I don't have to respond. And it worked beautifully, right? Like my friends and I, we laughed, we walked right on by, we didn't have to stop, we didn't have to engage. For all intents and purposes, they were not there. I'm sitting in the church service the next day. Which of these characters most characterizes you? And I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> I'm acing this in a paper. And when it comes right down to actually having a chance to love my neighbor as myself, I'm botching it in every way imaginable. I'm pretending like people who do exist don't. Do you know what really got me that day, though? Singing about my parents. Thinking about my parents and then thinking about that quote from Brennan Manning who said that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their life. Wow. So here I am. I'm a Christian. I'm going to a Christian college. I'm acing my New Testament courses, and I'm pretending my people who do exist don't. Shutting my eyes to the people who are around me. How is that an indication of faith? How is that an indication of the kingdom of God? 
So I'm sitting there realizing this, and then in the middle of that church service came this idea to try and enter into that life, to try and be there a little bit, to try and understand from the inside, in a sense, what it's like to be a human being created in God's image, trying to survive on the city streets, trying to survive on the streets of North American cities. I didn't know what to do with the idea. I didn't know where it had come from. I thought it was just a crazy idea from a 20-year-old college student. I didn't know how to handle it. But over the next 16 months, this idea took root. It began to grow. And through a lengthy process of prayer and discernment, study, counsel, etc., my friend Sam and I slowly discern God's invitation to us to go and to live on the streets of six different American cities for a total of five months. And we wanted to do this in order to better understand firsthand, what is it like? What is it like to be human trying to subsist, trying to exist, trying to survive on the streets? And so we ate out of garbage cans. We busked or panhandled in order to try and make enough money to eat at night. We ate out of rescue missions. We slept underneath the bridges. We tried to figure out where to go to the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning when all the streets are shut down or all the city is shut down and all the shops are shut down. We wanted to understand firsthand what's it like. But I need to say something really important right now. This was artificial, right? We chose this. We stepped into it. We knew we were going to be there for five months, and then we knew we were going to leave. And so I don't claim to understand what it's like to be out on the streets for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and never know if you're going to get off. I don't claim that. Of course not. I don't know what it's like to not know if you're going to get off the streets ever. I don't know what that's like, and I don't claim it. But I do know a little bit of what it's like to be told by people's actions that you do not matter, that you do not even exist, that you're not worth my time, you're not worth my effort. I know a little bit of that. I know what it's like to knock on a church's door and be shunned and turned away because of who people thought we were, what we looked like, what people's perceptions of us were, how we smelled. And as I share some of these stories over the next couple of minutes, that's my hope, that's my prayer, that's why I'm here this morning, is that invitation to say, how would we respond? Brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we respond when we are confronted with the reality that we face in our world? How do we participate with God? How do we co-labor towards the kingdom of God? How do we be advocates and agents of the kingdom? How do we help those who are captive be freed? How do we help those who are blind see? Is this just rhetoric? Is this just nice idea? Are these just good stories? Or is this actually something that brings life where there is death? Something that you and I are called to participate in rather than just agree with. So that's why I'm sharing some of these stories. That's why I'm here. That's what this is about. Not because I'm telling you what it's like to be on the streets for 20 years. I don't know. Sam and I started on the streets of Washington, D.C., And a friend dropped us off right outside of Union Station. This is where all the trains and subways come together in downtown D.C., right? So a friend dropped us off outside, and Sam and I, I mean, we're 20-year-old college guys. We have backpacks with a few books, a journal, some Bibles in it, you know. I have a T-shirt, a sweatshirt, one pair of shorts, one pair of jeans, a backpack that I put all that stuff in, a sleeping bag that I bought for $2 at a local thrift store, a guitar with which to panhandle. Sam has more or less the same amount of stuff, and our friend drops us off outside of Union Station. We hop out, grab all of our gear out of the back, slam the trunk, and our friend drove away. And Sam and I looked at each other, and we were both completely terrified at that point. Right? Like Our eyes were this big, because we're thinking to ourselves, what do we just do? <laughs> what, do we, what do we just do? We just sort of cross this invisible threshold, same world, totally different perspective. Normally, if I'm hungry, I pull out a credit card, and I buy anything I want. Or I go to the dining commons of my college and it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. If I'm tired, I go to my room, I crawl into my comfortable bed, and I fall asleep. If it's raining outside, that's fine. I have four walls and I have a roof. If it's cold, I throw on another blanket. If I feel unsafe, I lock my door. 
Those are the normal ways I go about addressing the needs that I feel. If I have to go to the restroom, it's just down the hallway. Well, I don't have a credit card. I don't have four walls. I don't have a roof anymore. I don't have a bathroom to go to. There's no dining commons. Where, how are we supposed to survive? What do we do? How do we subsist? How do we exist here? We went downstairs into Union Station. I mean, we're 20-year-old guys. We're always hungry, right? Like, we're hoping we might find some food to eat that day. We don't have any money. We don't know how we're going to do it. We sit down next to a mom and her toddler, a mother and her toddler, and just kind of soak it all in, how different it is to be in a place when you don't have resources to be able to access what's there. And the mother and her toddler, I mean, the kid has begun to make quite a scene in the middle of this crowded room. He will not eat. He's refusing to eat the piece of pizza that his mother has purchased for him because it has pepperoni on it. And he's decided that that day he hates pepperoni. So he's screaming that he hates pepperoni. And I'm looking at Sam and I'm like, I love pepperoni pizza. Maybe, maybe we could ask her for the pizza. I would love to eat a piece of pizza right now. But, you know, we didn't end up asking her for it. She got quite embarrassed. Understandably, her son's making a huge scene in the middle of this crowded room. So she stands up and she grabs her son by the hand and grabs the piece of pizza. And they go over uh, towards the exit and she tosses the pizza out on the way, untouched. And I looked at Sam and I said, okay, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I love pepperoni pizza, but not that much. I am not ready to dig into the garbage after somebody else's food. Not, mm, not quite ready to do that. First day, right? How long do you think it took until we didn't care anymore until where the food, about where the food was coming from? <laughs> it was about a week, about a week of day in, day out, sleeping on the concrete. About a week of day in, day out, sitting on the ground, watching thousands of people pass us by without it looking at us again, pretending like we didn't exist, suddenly seeing from the other perspective what I had done so often before. It's about a week of day in, day out, being woken up, late night rainstorm, trying to figure out how do we stay dry? Where do we go? 3 a.m., waking up, having to go to the bathroom, everything's shut. Where do I go? A week of day in, day out life, just the first week, and Sam and I didn't care anymore where the food was coming from, and I'll never forget how it happened either. We were walking on a downtown street in Washington, D.C., and we passed a small sandwich shop, and we went into that sandwich shop. We didn't have money to buy food. We just wanted to go inside because it was 90 degrees outside, 90% humidity. We were hot. We were exhausted. We were dehydrated. We were thinking, if we could just sit for 10 minutes in an air-conditioned room, that'd be fantastic. If we could just fill up a water bottle, it'd be amazing. So we go into this sandwich shop, not to buy food, but just for air conditioning and some water. And we walk past the people downstairs who were making sandwiches, and we go upstairs to this small square dining room. Nobody else in the room at that point. We sit down in one of the corners and, again, just sip some water, thankful for air conditioning. A couple of minutes later, a group of people walk in downstairs, buy sandwiches, and they come upstairs to this small square dining area. Sam and I are seated in one of the corner tables. This group of people sits diagonally across from us at one of the other tables. They sit down, they begin eating their sandwiches, and then they pull out Bibles to start doing their lunchtime Bible study. I'm kicking Sam under the table. I'm like, dude, these are Christians. That's great. We're going to eat today. This is fantastic. Maybe they're going to be reading that James 2, 15 and 16 passage, right? Which, if you're familiar with it, you know that a paraphrase is, if you see someone who's in need, but you don't do anything about it, what kind of faith is that? We're hopeful that they might, I don't know, read that passage and then think to themselves, hey, hey object lesson. Like, let's illustrate this. This is not just an idea. Let's do this and buy us something to eat. We're hopeful. We're hungry. But here's what happens. What I had done so many times before. They pretend like they can't see us, right? We're invisible to them. They're looking intently down the table at their sandwiches. They're looking intently down the table at the scriptures. They're looking intently across the table at one another. They're looking intently above the table at the ceiling, but they are not looking at us. Fascinating to be intentionally ignored. 
few minutes later, another group of people walk in downstairs, buy sandwiches, come upstairs, sit third corner of this small square dining room. They begin eating their sandwiches and then pull out Bibles and start doing a Bible study. Then Sam's kicking me under the table and saying, dude, our odds are going up. This is great. What kind of sandwich are you going to buy? You know, we're getting excited. We're hopeful. (laughs) Same thing, though. They're doing everything they can to not notice us. A few minutes later, not even kidding, another group of people walk in downstairs, buy sandwiches, come upstairs, sit down, fourth corner of this small square dining room. They begin eating their sandwiches, pull out Bibles, and start doing a Bible study. At this point, Sam and I are like, this is interesting. What is this? This is like a, you know, like a YouTube like flash video. Like, how do Christians respond in a time of need? Fine, watch this. You know, like this is what's going on. Is this candid camera? Like, what is this? I don't know what's going on, but it's a very interesting situation. And what ended up happening is that everybody was looking around the room, except in Sam's in my corner. And so <laughs> they all realized, hey, we're Christians here. And they pulled their tables together. They start fellowshipping. This is a small room. We can hear everything that's being said. People are talking about where they go to church. People are talking about how long they've been Christians. People are talking about the short-term mission trip they went on last year to South America to serve the poor. They start arguing a little bit about which Bible translation is the best. You know, people are saying, well, I like the NIV. I like the KJV. I like the NLT. I said, Sam, I would give anything for a BLT right now. Are you serious? Are you serious? We're in a room full of people who are talking about the living, active word of God, and everybody's intentionally turning a blind eye towards us. What is this? What is this? What is this? A few minutes go by and people start checking their watches and everybody realizes, oh, hey, I got to get back to work. And we can hear them all saying, great to meet you, brother. Great to meet you, sister. God bless you. Keep on. And every single person in the room that day closed their Bibles, took the rest of their sandwiches, threw them out on the way and walked out the door without ever even looking at us. And when the last guy went out the door and the door slammed shut, I looked at Sam and I said, bro, that guy had a meatball sub with extra cheese. I call that one. So we go over to the garbage can, we tear off the top, and we feast, and we thank God for it. It kind of smells a little bit sour from the morning garbage, and there's a few flies buzzing around, but we don't care. There's food. There's food. So we feasted, and we thank God. I don't know what it's like to be out for 20 years. I don't. But I thank God for garbage before, many times, actually. And that grieves me, because I know that people are still doing that. Sam and I would panhandle, right? Like we'd busk, we'd play music and hope for money. We weren't aggressively panhandling, we weren't trying to force people to give us money, but we'd sit on the street corner, we'd open up our guitar cases, and we'd play and hope that people would be generous. And sometimes we did well enough that we could buy enough food for ourselves and for other people in the homeless community with whom we were becoming friends. Other times we hardly did very well at all. We didn't make anything. One night we took the advice of an elderly homeless man and homeless woman who told us, you guys should go out to Georgetown. This is when we were still in downtown D.C. They said, go to Georgetown. You know, there's more people out there. There's a great nightlife. It was a Friday night. They said, you guys, you'll do, do great out there. So go out to Georgetown. So we walked from downtown D.C. out to Georgetown, found this gorgeous spot right in the banks of the Potomac River, right in front of this beautiful restaurant. I mean, this is a great spot. We think we've struck gold, right? I mean, like Sam and I are sitting on this boardwalk and there's all these adults, like everybody's dressed up Friday night, dressed to impressed. We're right in front of this restaurant, a few bars in the area, great nightlife, great night scene. We're thinking at the very least, we're going to get takeout. We're going to get doggy bags from this restaurant. We're going to feast. It's going to be amazing. So Sam and I panhandle from 6 p.m. until 10 p.m., four hours of panhandling. We've made a dollar and 18 cents at the end of that four hours. And we're realizing, well, we've missed all the places that we're serving a meal this evening. I don't think we're going to be able to find a place to stay tonight. Pretty hungry, pretty frustrated, no doggy bags. 
Maybe tomorrow we'll find a place that's serving a free breakfast or something. So we decide to finish our last song and then go find a place to sleep under a bridge somewhere. And as we're finishing that last song, this group of little boys comes walking along the boardwalk. Now, they're about as out of place that evening as Sam and I are, right? Like, they don't belong there anymore that we belong there. They see us sitting there on the ground, and they run up and they encircle us and listen to us finish our song. And as we finish our song, the leader of this group of boys, I mean, they're all young. They're like under 10, all of them. The leader of this group of boys steps forward. He's got his hands in his pockets. He's kind of nervous, right? He comes up and he says, um, uh, excuse me, sirs, we are from the Boys and Girls Club of America and we're raising money for our summer baseball uniforms. Would you like to help us? And, and I looked from him to my guitar case and back and I said, sure, bro. <laughs> like, we have a dollar and 18 cents. If you want it, take it. It's yours. Go for it. It's yours. At that moment, from the back of this group of little boys, the littlest guy, the youngest, smallest one, steps up, and he just elbows his friends up. He's pushing his friends out of the way. He comes up and stands right in front of me. So I'm sitting on the ground. Sam's on my right. I got this little boy right here in front of me, and he's silhouetted against this whole big restaurant nightlife scene, all these adults, right? He looks me straight in the eyes, and he says, Hey, you guys don't have anything, do you? You don't have anything. And I said, Well... Uh, buddy, you know, I mean, not right now. No, I mean, we have a dollar and 18 cents. It's yours. You guys can take it if you want. But, but other than that, not right now. No. He thought about it for a minute, put his hand into his pocket, pulled out a dollar and a quarter, put it into the guitar case, then looked back at me and said, don't worry about it, bro. I got you covered. <laughs> so I'm like, no way. No way in this one moment that this little kid just was more generous than the thousands of adults who have walked by over the previous four hours. No way. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, he gave us seven more cents, right? The fact that they gave us more money is not the reason I'm sharing this story with you. There's a lot that we should talk about there, about how to care well for people who are panhandling or who are busking. I think getting gift certificates to local restaurants or having a conversation with somebody or taking them for a meal or directing them towards an organization who might be able to help walk alongside of them in the long term, that's a great way to engage and to respond. Again, we could talk more about that in a few minutes if some of you would like to. The reason I shared that story with you is because that group of little boys were the only people who saw us that whole night. And it changed the texture of the evening to be noticed, to be seen, to not be told by people's actions that we were meaningless, but to be told by two little boys or a group of little boys, you matter. I see you. You exist. And I'm not going to pretend for any reason of convenience that you don't. That changed the texture of the evening for us. And if someone was willing to acknowledge us, to treat us like we were human beings, it changed the day. It's one of the most astonishing things we see in the life of Christ as we read the Gospels, as we read about the work that Jesus was doing here in this world the way that he was going about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, the way that he was proclaiming recovery of sight to the blind and healing for those who were in need of healing, sight for the blind. The way that he was going about proclaiming those things means that he was treating people like they were people. He was rehumanizing them with his work. And that often meant going to the margins of his society, going to the places where the respectable people would never be found hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And the people on the top of the religious scheme of that day can't figure out what this guy's doing. Why did you let her touch you? Why are you with him? What is this? What are you doing? Why are you hanging out with sinners? Jesus says, it's not for the healthy that I came, but for the sick. 
for those in need of healing, of life, of restoration, for those in need of being freed, for those in need of being loved, that's why I'm here. That's what I came for. That's what this is about. It's about bringing life where there is death. Woe to us when this becomes just an idea because we're missing out on the activity of God to bring life into our world. You know, sometimes I think we get so caught up in how big the issues are and how big the problems are and how deep the systems run. And yes, of course, all of that is true. But again and again in Christ's life and ministry, we see him engaging with particular people in particular instances and the kingdom of God is present and is at work and is coming. Sometimes I think we get distracted by how big it is and we're refusing then to do anything at all. And yet we need to remember that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, a tiny thing that grows imperceptibly and suddenly it's there. Suddenly it's there. What do I mean by that? Tangible example. I was in Portland not too long ago and I had some extra time and some extra money and I went to one of these little stands, burrito stands on the side of the road in downtown Portland and I bought 10 bean and cheese burritos, $2.50 for the bean and cheese burritos. These are not like Chipotle, $8, five pound burritos. These are like just simple, small burritos, right? And I went and I bought these burritos and I walked around downtown Portland for the next couple of hours and I would just sit down next to people who were seemingly homeless and say, hey, you know, I have some extra food. I have some burritos from that stand right there. Would you be interested in one? You know, those kinds of things. And just have a conversation. Just talk about anything and everything, whatever, baseball, basketball, football, politics, weather. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Where are you from? If you could tell me where to go in the U.S., where should I go? If I should go see one place, where should I go? Just general conversational type questions to get the conversation moving. One of these guys, halfway through his bean and cheese burrito, stopped me in my tracks and looked at me and said, hey, do you know you've changed my week? I said, Man, that must be a really good burrito. What are you talking about? I've changed your week. He said, I mean it. The burrito's good and all, but you're the first person who's talked to me in a week. Thank you. I'm thinking, really? Five, five minutes of my day and $2.50 worth of bean and cheese burrito can change your week. Yeah. Simple, small things go a long way. That is not to say that we do not need to be mindful as Christians of the larger systems that are in place in our world and the things that keep people oppressed, the reasons that poverty becomes entrenched in our community, in our country, in our world. It's not to say we don't need to address those things too. We do. But we also need to be willing to speak to this particular individual, this particular person, to engage, perhaps, as the Holy Spirit might be inviting us to do to hold those two together, both ends of the micro and the macro spectrum, to hold them together. Because it seems to me that's what Jesus was on about. I'm going to share one story now from an experience that we had interacting with the church. And I share this story not to shame the church, not to shame the individual, but to invite us, again, to ask ourselves the question, if this was me, if this was happening in my church, if this is happening right now, how would I respond? What would, it, what would be going on? So Sam and I stepped outside of a very large church in Phoenix on a Friday night. Saturday morning, we woke up, and there was a church breakfast being set up in one of the auxiliary buildings across from the main sanctuary against which Sam and I had slept. So we wake up and we're watching these big stainless steel buffet trays full of bacon and eggs and pancakes being carried into this auxiliary building. Sam and I, we're stoked. I mean, this is great, right? Like, we're going to have a chance to have breakfast. We're going to hang out. We're going to have some conversations. This is going to be really good. This is good news, a meal on a church's campus. Brilliant. A couple of minutes later, these two gentlemen come walking across from that auxiliary building towards Sam and I, where we had been sleeping the night before. And as they get closer to us, we can tell by their body language that they're really not very happy with the fact that we're there. 
And as they come up to us, one of the guys shouts out to us and says, hey guys, you're not supposed to be here right now. You need to get out of here. Leave. And they walked right into the main sanctuary. And Sam and I didn't leave at that point. We sort of looked at each other and said, you mean after breakfast, right? Like after a little bit? Yeah, so sure, we'll go then. That's fine. So we stayed, hoping to be invited in. A few minutes later, the same guys came back out, saw that we were still sitting there where we had been the night before and where they had seen us a few moments earlier. And as they came out, they began to get a little bit more frustrated and said, hey, guys, we told you you're not supposed to be here right now. What are you still doing here? And I said, well, yes, sir. You know, I heard that you said that we're not supposed to be here right now. But why? Why? Why do we have to go? I don't understand. And he thought about it for a minute and said, oh, well, because these are church grounds, you see, and church grounds aren't for this. You need to go. And I probably shouldn't have done this, but I was, you know, tired and hungry and jaded. We've been on the streets for about four months at that point in time. I shouldn't have done this, but I thought to myself, do you know what? <laughs> I'm a theological student. I love debate. Let's debate that a little bit. Like, what are church grounds for, actually? Maybe they're for loving God and loving your neighbor. I don't know. Let's talk about that a little bit, you know? And he said, <laughs> he said, you know what? We could stand here and debate. He got really livid at that point. He said, we could stand here and debate that all day. Bottom line, they're not for this. You need to leave. So we left. We left. That was a Saturday morning. Sunday morning, we came back for the church service. And the church service started at like 9.30. We thought it started at 9. So we got it a half an hour early. We show up. We come in. We sit down in the main sanctuary, this big, beautiful, beautiful place. Sit down. And slowly over the next half an hour, the room fills up around us, except for this 10-foot circle where nobody wants to sit right around Sam and I. Again, so interesting to be ignored, to be alone to be refused in the midst of the church as the church is gathering together for worship. But anyway, at the end of the service, we hear from the back of the church, this guy just yelling at the top of his lungs from the very back. He's saying, guys, guys, guys. And he runs across the back of the church, down the main aisle to the pews right behind us. He comes up and he throws his arms around both Sam and I. It's the guy who had kicked us off the property the day before. And he's weeping. And he's saying, guys, I am, I am so sorry. I, can't, I cannot believe I did it. I'm so sorry. I cannot believe I kicked you off the church's property during a church breakfast. I am sorry. Would you forgive me? Forgive me, please. Please forgive me. And this is a big guy making a big scene in a really big church. So we're like, dude, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. You're forgiven. It's all good. We're used to it. It happens a lot. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It's okay. And he said, wait, you're used to it? And we said, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's happened before. Not every place, but it's happened before. He said, guys, I... I'm so sorry. He said, I can't. He said, it doesn't make any sense to me what I did or what other people have. I'm so sorry. He said, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like a hospital that has a big sign above the front door that says no sick people allowed. It just doesn't make any sense. It's actually antithetical to the institution's existence because the church, we believe, we proclaim, come as you are and be transformed, not fix yourself and then we'll let you in. That's not how it works. And we said, yeah, yeah, we think so too. We think so too. But oftentimes it's just not what we've experienced, you know. And here's why I'm sharing the story with you. Because at that point he got kind of embarrassed and put his hands into his pockets and said, and I have to confess something to you guys. And we said, confess? You just apologized. You're forgiven. It's all, what, what do you need to confess? He said, well, you're not going to believe this. I don't believe it actually. He said, but I'm, I'm actually the director of, of homeless outreach for our church. So I'm like, wait, what? No way. No way. Okay. So how does that work exactly? Director of the homeless outreach kicks us off the church's property during <laughs> what happens here. So here's why I'm sharing the story with you, because we all do this. I think I certainly do. It's this nice, neat little thing called compartmentalization. What I mean is homeless ministry at the church was on Tuesday. 
So Saturday morning, wow, that's not homeless ministry time. That's church breakfast time, and they're very different things, right? They don't mix. Oil and water, sorry. We compartmentalize, don't we? And we say, sure, I'll show up on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m., and I'll be there until 1. And the rest of my week, the rest of my hours, God, thank you very much, are mine. And I do what I want with them. Or as we give our tithes and our offerings back to the one who made everything that exists, we say, sure, you can have 10%, but really, you know, I mean, depending on how you calculate the taxes, I mean, it's more, I mean, well, that's really complicated. Here you go. But the rest is mine. Thank you. I do with it what I want. I think there's an extraordinary invitation that we see in the Gospels, that we see in the life of Christ, that we see in the ministry of the kingdom of God at work to come in our world, that you and I get to co-labor. You and I get to participate. You and I get to work synergistically. We are invited and empowered by the spirit of the living God to participate in what God is doing, to bring life where there is death, to bring light where there is darkness, to bring healing where there is destruction. And all we have to do in a sense, to shut some of that down is to compartmentalize it, to put limits on it, to say no. Now, of course, the kingdom of God will come. Ultimately, God will accomplish it. Ultimately, God will fulfill his purposes. Ultimately, God's plan will be made complete. But, oh, may we not be hurdles to that. May we participate in that. May we work with. May we co-labor. May we see the kingdom of God come in this place. There's a guy named Rodney Stark. He's at the University of Baylor, and he wrote a fascinating book called The Rise of Christianity. And in that book, he talks about how it was that this fledgling group of people in the first century created or were a part of a movement that became one of the dominant religions in the entire world. He's looking at the way, from a sociologist's perspective, how Christianity came to be what it is today. Because if you were to look at the people among whom the early disciples and apostles were called, whom the early believers were, you would never have expected them to be able to be a part or the seed of what has become Christianity. You would just never expect that from a sociological perspective. And Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, points to two extraordinary things in the first part of the church, the first few centuries of the church, that helped Christianity take root and flourish. And he looks at the way that Christians responded during times of famine and during times of plagues as one of the primary ways that Christianity spread throughout the world. And here's what he's looking at. Because in the ancient Roman period, famines would rip through the entire place, right? I mean, you just lose an entire crop and thousands would starve to death. And what Christians became known for was this, was self-sacrificial love. Go figure, right? Christians became known for fasting not just two days a week, but four days a week, especially during times of famine, so that... They could give their meager grain rations to their starving, non-believing neighbors. Remember all the philosophy and stuff that we learned about in high school? Plato and Aristotle, the entire Greco-Roman world was consumed with trying to help people live good lives. And for all the education and all the power and all the money that went into that, people consistently were not living virtuous lives. Then here's this group of Weird Christian people who are actually living virtuously. And the whole world starts to wake up and take notice. 
or during times of plague. If you had the money, if you had the wealth, you would flee to the hills. You would leave the city center because that's where the plague would be centered. So if you could, you would leave. But during the plagues in the ancient Roman Empire, Christians became known for establishing what would become hospitals. The first centers of medicinal care. The first places where people who were well were seeking to care for those who were sick. Why? Because of this extraordinary command, love your neighbor as yourself. Because of Paul's interpretation, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. As we talk about the post-Christian West, I wonder if you and I as followers of Christ might be invited back to the core of what we say we believe. That there is a God who loves us and who has given himself for us. And that we are called and invited and empowered to participate in his bringing of that kingdom. That we ought not live for ourselves only. That we ought live for others. That we might work towards life in all its fullness. Pray with me and we'll conclude. Creating, sustaining, and redeeming God, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would hasten the day of the fulfillment of your kingdom, God. We ache and we long and we groan and we weep and we work for that day. And we cry, hasten it, Lord. May your kingdom come in our lives, in all the ways in which death is still at work, in our communities, amidst all the ways in which death is still at work, in our world, amidst all the ways in which death is still at work. So Lord, we cry hasten that day. We also pray that you would help us to participate with you in the bringing of your kingdom, God. That we would love and that we would serve, and that we would bind up the broken, and that we would heal, and that we would help those who are in need, and that we would do that not so that you will love us, that's not what this is about, but because you love us, because you are empowering us, because you are bringing life, because you are setting us free, God. Help us to participate in that work. And I give you thanks and praise for Bay Hills Community Church, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here who are at work in so many ways to do exactly that here at this time and here in this place. I pray that you would bless them, pray that you would encourage them, I pray that you would uplift them and that you would continue to bring your kingdom in this place through them. Give you great thanks and praise. We pray all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me simply close by saying it's been a great honor to be here with you all this morning. I'm deeply thankful for the time. Obviously, there's much, much more that I wish that I could have said and simply wasn't able to because of time. Much more from Sam's and my story, much more to talk about, much more to discuss. I have copies of a book called Under the Overpass, which is the story, the chronicle of Sam's and my time on the street. And on the table back there, I'd be happy to just talk with you a bit more about that. If you want to find out more of the story, pick up a copy of the book, read it. It's a lot more information there. Um, or if you have other questions you want to dialogue about, please look me up uh, on my website, which is just michaeljankoski.com. We can be in dialogue about things there. And finally, let me also just point out that as I've had the chance to travel and speak about this, one of the things that I think I've 
come to realize that is so absolutely essential for us as followers of Christ is to not let this thing called our faith be just rhetoric or idea, but actually allow it to be something that shapes and forms us. What I'm saying is we need to not just believe our faith, we need to practice our faith. And this is not just an idea that we assent to, but something that we live out, something that shapes how we live and move and have our being in the world. And so um, this, you know, this is in your pamphlet that you received this morning. This is a book I have coming out actually a month from yesterday. So September 16th, it's called The Sacred Year, Mapping the Soulscape of Spiritual Practice. And so this is after almost a decade of traveling and speaking about my experience, Sam's and Mai's experience of living on the streets. This is sort of what uh, is coming into fruition now. So this comes out uh, one month from yesterday, September 16th. And if you look on the back, it says thesacredyear.com. There's an offer that I'm doing with the publisher uh, that is a free ebook if you pre-order The Sacred Year before September 1st. So just to point that out to you, uh, lots of ways to continue the conversation, obviously so much more that can and should have been said, but hopefully this is a good sort of, I guess, introduction to this two-week series that you're doing on social justice. So my brothers and sisters in Christ at Bay Hills Community Church, thank you for the tremendous honor of the chance to be here. Grace and peace. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.